Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Why is the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting following me on Instagram? Wow, I'm just clutching all the pearls already today. Spermerched? What does he say? It's a beach market. It's a little one. <laughs> and on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 18, the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting. Well, hello. Hello. I know that this episode sounds like we're about to do a self-help audiobook, but we're not. It sure does. We can help you break into broadcasting with this episode. Yes, broadcasting from 1990. <laughs> <laughs> or technically, part of it is from 1966. <laughs> yes, that's true. And most likely they filmed this in 1989. So it's just a yep. whole bunch of years just like thrown up together. Ever-changing landscape. This is, as we said, the 18th episode of second season. It is directed by a young fella named Barnett Kelman. Yes, and we have some freelance writers today. Yay! Even though, as everyone knows, as we talked about, the script will come into the room and everyone will work on it. So it is a group effort. Still, the writers of note are Billy Ryback. I hope I say that correctly. Most people might know him for writing for Home Improvement. And Marilyn Anderson, whose credit that I recognize the most was Carol and Company. Man, that was such a nice reminder. I, I was loved like, that Carol show. and Company. Oh, that was where I first discovered Richard Kind. Yes. Oh, wow. I'm just clutching all the pearls already today. Speaking of pearls. Wait until Ken shows up because my pearls were clutched <laughs> oh, anytime Ken was sweet Ken. on screen. Ken, 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 Ken. This episode aired February 12th, 1990. We are in sweeps. We are deep into the sweeps. Deep into those sweeps. Sweep, sweep. Chim, chimney, chim, chim, tree. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. And it is... It's fine. <laughs> I apologize for myself. Anytime you want to bring up Dick Van Dyke. I supply the demand. Speaking of things that we need right now from our government, the song is <laughs> Respect. Hmm... A second time this song is used, only, Jesse, what version of Respect are we listening to during this opening? I'm so glad you asked. We're listening to Respect as covered by a marching band. We don't have the credit of which marching band. We don't, though, no. Which, as a marching band baby, I think is inexcusable. As marching bands are a hallowed thing in my home, I shall briefly share with you all that my father, the late Richard Eugene Mullins, was a bit of a musical prodigy. He got a music scholarship to The Ohio State. He played every brass instrument except the trombone. Wow. Mm-hmm. And while he was there, as many of you know, The Ohio State, home of the Buckeyes, is home to its pride and joy, the best damn band in the land, a.k.a. The Ohio State Marching Band. I am a legacy marching band child. I took up the trumpet as a child, played for a decade because my dad was a brass player, Aww. and my mom had been clarinet. My sisters did the flute and the oboe, I believe. Wait, your family is literally the Partridge family? Yes. And like that's why I started on stage at three months old, because my entire family was in that production of Carousel. This is what we do. And so I grew up connecting with my father over marching bands and the best damn band in the land. Also, my dad is the reason I love Aretha Franklin. So I had quite the emotional prep. One of my favorite, they're famous for their halftime shows. For those who don't know, which is probably most people listening, it's a niche market. <laughs> sorry. The I'm Ohio sorry. State Marching Band is very famous really, for it's, its half. It's, it's a, a niche, niche market. market. It's a little one. 
they're famous for their halftime shows and the designs that they can choreograph as they're playing mm-hmm. on the field. It's so impressive when you see an excellent band do this. Like not only are the arrangements incredible and very evocative of the original songs, so they're famous for the script Ohio, in which at the end of their show, they turn into a script writing of Ohio. And it's a huge honor to dot the I. There's always one brass player. It's usually, I believe, like a tuba or a euphonium, you know, like one of like the big ones that goes and dots the I. And it's a prestigious honor or prestigious honor. And my dad dotted the I in the script Ohio. Oh, that's so cool. And I will never forget one time when I was a kid in Alaska with him on one of his tour buses and he had a bus full of senior folks from Ohio. And he was so excited because he grew up there, Marion, Ohio. And everyone gets on the bus. I'm sorry, motor coach. My father would rise from his grave and throttle me if I said bus. It is a motor coach. He was very excited. All these people were going to show up, gets everyone onto the motor coach. And as he's taking off with them, he just very casually drops to all of them that he's from Ohio and he may have dotted the I. And that motor coach went crazy. This group of senior folks from Ohio lost the damn minds because it is such a big deal. Anytime I meet somebody who went to Ohio State, the Ohio State, I let them know and they freak out. It's such an honor. So I have a link that I will share so that we can all look at it, which is their famous halftime show, A Tribute to the Blues Brothers. Oh, of course. Yep, which includes Think from the first movie. And then there's a beautiful video where they're not on the field, but they're actually on a stage Basically, I believe it's the day or the day after we found out that Aretha Franklin had passed. Mm. And they do an Aretha Franklin tribute. And when I tell you that I started that video after watching several Ohio State videos, and they start speaking of what Aretha Franklin was, I started sobbing. Like, maybe I'm just very sleepy. The convergence of these things that I love. Yeah. Well, it's so much personal stuff for you in that. Yeah. So... It just felt great to start this episode with this marching band cover of Respect. And it's so apropos to what we're talking about in this episode. Now, can I quickly ask you, you once corrected yourself, Mm -hmm. but several times said the Ohio State. It is the Ohio State. It is not Ohio State. It is the Ohio State. Okay, I never knew that. We're either from there, gone there, or are familiarly connected to it. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that will say the Ohio State. Yeah, so interesting. See, don't say Mm -hmm. you never learn anything on a show. I mean, I just did. That's right. We just had the longest tangent about marching bands. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> but the opening is uh, our pictures, which we will put on the website and social media. And maybe we'll oh. put our high school pictures. Mm-hmm. Show you guys a little bit of us. Oh, get ready for my bob. It is quite the look. Now, what I found <laughs> interesting, which I don't know if you noticed about this. So obviously, like a lot of these openings where we have childhood pictures, these are all high school yearbook pictures. Mm-hmm. We've Candace looking like the model that she was in the 60s because oh she was a damn model. A curly haired Phil. Oh, he's so cute. He looks Pat great. Corley. But there's no, there's no Charles Kimbrough. Did you notice that? Well, I noted that because I was like, oh, looking at like what year he may have graduated. I'm wondering if. In his generation, having the individual photos wasn't really a thing yet. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. You know what? No, 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 no. I mean, maybe this is not a nationwide thing, but Mm -hmm. I've spent 2020 doing my family tree. And Mm -hmm. I just realized this. And Ancestry.com had a whole release of New Jersey yearbooks. Mm -hmm. And they did do pictures in the 30s for sure. Not that I'm saying he graduated in the 30s. I'm not saying that. But I'm like, no, no. But I remember going through one of my favorite things at my grandma's house would be to go through all of their yearbooks Mm -hmm. because they had all of them upstairs. And so I would look at like when they all had the same glasses and all that kind of stuff. And 
yeah, his generation definitely had them. So I'm wondering if either he could have lost it. Could, yeah, if they lost it and there just wasn't a database to find it exactly, in time. Exactly, yeah. Because that was my first thought that they lost it. Because I know my high school yearbook got ruined by my brother. <laughs> I mean, I still have the proofs. Mm-hmm. I can get you guys I a picture. I need someone but- to, I mean, personally, if I could just, you know, call up Charlie Kimbrough and ask him myself. But I need someone to tell me which person in that football lineup is Charles Kimbrough. Yeah, it was really hard to see. I mean, yeah, it's an old photo yeah. and it's grainy. We're not in It Heidi. might not even be him. It could just be a filler picture. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Faith is adorable, as she always is. Faith and, like, Faith and Miles. <laughs> Faith and Grant look exactly the same, which makes sense because theirs are the so most young, recent. Exactly, yes. <laughs> but, like, they're closer to high school graduation yeah. than most people in yeah, the Yeah, Faith, you're like, that's obviously yeah. Faith. But Grant shows up and you're like, was this yesterday? I know. <laughs> the thing that makes me laugh is that it's a proof. Did you notice yep. that? It says yep. proof on it. <laughs> Which, listen, I am not mocking because I'm pretty sure we still have the proofs from my bat mitzvah because my mother couldn't decide which picture she wanted. Mm-hmm. But I love it. I was like, it's a proof. It's literally not the picture. But listen, you know, they might have had access to it. So it's we adorable. come into, after this rousing uh, rendition of respect to Miles with the group at the table and the bullpen, just he's really upset. You know, these are highly paid professionals. You know, why can't they think of... Whatever it is that they just can't seem to come up with. And then Murphy comes out of her office looking super nice in a lovely black dress. Oh, yeah. If I didn't know any better, I would think she was going to a funeral, though, because it is like a very sort of, you mm-hmm. know, upscale sort of nice black dress holding pearls. And she kind of awkwardly smiles at her secretary. who looks like a sweet, like older lady just kind of smiling and taking all of her cute little things out of her box. Mm-hmm. Now, here we have another secretary who is technically uncredited, but I think we can guess that this is probably secretary 29. Mm-hmm. Just yep. based Until on- we get another number, we're going to call her 29. We're call her 29. Miles asks for Murphy's help. They can't decide on where to go to lunch. <laughs> of course, it's, so always, real. it's always like a reveal of something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That is not what you think it is. It's not about the news. But also, guys, you're just going to go to Phil's. Also, for me, this rings so true. The smartest people I know are some of the biggest ditzes I know as well. Like some of the most like on top of their game people are the ones that take three hours to pick which Subway sandwich they want. Like... It feels so right that these clever geniuses are just can't decide on where to go to lunch. Also, from speaking to the writers of Murphy Brown mm-hmm. and writers in rooms in general, the mm-hmm. food part <laughs> seems to be a very important thing. Where are you going to order the food for lunch? I'll tell you, it's the most important decisions that I make every day. Most of my day revolves around what am I going to eat for my next meal? <laughs> You're thinking ahead. That's really good. I'm thinking about it right now okay. as we talk. Murphy seems to be really, really nervous. Murphy's really nervous. She wants to know if they like what she's wearing. She's still overdressed. This is not our usual Murphy. Mm-hmm. To which Frank responds, I like the pearls. Do you need the dress? <laughs> it's so good. It's so good also because, like, he doesn't even smile afterwards. He just says it, like, with a hint of, like, sarcasm, but, like, really straight. And it's a funny joke because there's absolutely no real sexual interest. Exactly. And that's what's so great about them. Yeah. And the fact that she knows that this is sort of their relationship because she goes, well, uh-huh. you just shut up and help me with them. Like, she's not even yeah. that angry with him. She's just like, come on, like, stop it. So Corky, of course, is like, ooh, Murphy has a date, which she finds far more interesting than Miles bringing up nuclear disarmament. Yeah, that's tracks. Listen, we all need a little gossip when things are bad, right? Yes, we do. So she needs help with the pearls, and first Frank tries to get the class, but he expresses that his hands are too big. Huge, actually. 
<laughs> and shows them to Corky, who just hits him in the hands. I also have to say, as he's jokingly leering and showing them to Corky, he's also holding them forward and out in a very specific angle and height. It's like his hands are surgeon's hands. Also oh, close enough to just oh, grab at something. I did not <laughs> pick up on He's that. clearly not implying he's going to do that to her, but it's like part of the joke. And I was just like, well done, Joe. <laughs> he's just that brother right now in yeah. this moment. Like and he's it's not very doing charming. it to Corky to be sexual. Oh, yeah. He's doing it to just like make her uncomfortable and piss her off. Yeah, it's not gross. It's hilarious. It feels like the equivalent of like a brother going up to a sister and going, look, and then opening up their mouth and like their tongue is filled with peanut butter. Yeah, or like snapping the bra. Yeah, there you go. So next, of course, Jim tries to help with the pearls because, you know, he's done it for Doris all the time. But Murphy's worried that she's going to be late. It's on a date. She's meeting her high school journalism teacher, Mr. Hamilton. And he's the reason why she joined the high school paper. And he ran it like the New York Times. I'm very interested seeing this now after the revelation about the college mentor in the revival. Oh, yes. Oh, why didn't I think of that? It really hit me, this, like, knowing what we saw in the revival about her next mentor. Oh, wow. Yeah. It makes this sing even more to me about how much this extremely sweet, safe man that we end up meeting was the first person. Yeah. So, of course, she's going to trust the next yeah. male mentor that she has. Mm-hmm. Now, for anyone who has not seen the revival who might be listening... There was an episode called Murphy 2, which we definitely recommend, which is available to stream. And we have an episode where we have an interview with the writers, which you can go back and mm -hmm. listen to, where we find out that Murphy had a mentor in college who tried to make a move on her, I guess would be the polite way of saying it without yes. going into more detail. It's really worth watching the way they handle that particular subject matter yeah. is, especially coming from new writers to the writer's room, was it was incredibly Murphy Brown in the way that they tackle it and don't shy away from what they're talking about. And they write for the unicorn right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can check Go out their work there. Go Skander. Yay! I also just need to interject that I have quoted a few standout gym moments in this episode. Oh, please, and go ahead. The first one being when they're talking about lunch, the gym just petulantly just says, I want beef, damn it. <laughs> he's very so random good. in this episode, but I really love it. I love it so much. As he's trying to help Murphy with the pearls, he says that he had a very sort of a female version of her Mr. Hamilton. Although she's dead now, probably teaching Beowulf in hell. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. It's one, it's one of my like second favorite jokes. It's so good. Teaching Beowulf in hell. It's not my favorite joke in the whole show. <laughs> uh, so Jim now can't get the necklace. And so Corky just like, exhausted, exasperated, and saying, men, men are so hopeless. When, of course, in one second, she, you know, fixes the clasp. And all of our three boys act like Neanderthals. Truly well done. It's quite nice to see that that moment of synchronicity of these men. And also to see <laughs> Jim and Miles especially act like <laughs> Neanderthals was very delightful. I think it is rare that we see the men group up together like this, because they are three such different archetypes of men. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You are right. It's rare we see them link up as the bros. Yeah. like, And I so there was something of, really nice about like, oh, they have moments too. Like season one, like in Soul Man, they definitely sort mm -hmm. of, you know, kind of grouped together. That's a really good point. 
So Murphy now begins to question every decision she has made in preparation to meet Mr. Hamilton was she picked Phil's, but maybe she should have gone with the press club. I actually kind of agree with her. I think she should have gone with the press club. Uh-huh. That would have impressed him probably. But mm-hmm. I guess Phil's is like a famous, you know, journalistic haunt. Of course, we don't have to have an extra set. So it's Phil's. Finally, she goes, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm an accomplished woman. Not like the man is going to give me a grade for God's sakes. And then, which is great, of course, she goes, besides, since when did I start caring what other people think of me? She gets mm. in the elevator and then goes, ah, Pearls, what was I thinking? She's so nervous to meet him. It's really sweet. She's so nervous. It is that reminder of, I mean, I even do that with people in my family where like you start reverting back to the dynamic that you had, especially when you hold someone at such a high esteem. Oh, absolutely. I, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but there is something very specific about childhood heroes, which we've talked about before, but also childhood Mm -hmm. mentors. You do sort of Mm -hmm. revert back to who you were, but also you want to impress them. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not just about her being, she's an accomplished woman. She's a very accomplished woman in her field. And as, you know, we talk about later, she has surpassed her mentor in the field and doesn't realize that yet. Because there's this thing about not only do we want to impress them, but part of the reason we want to impress them is the power dynamic that was established. Yeah, and you still feel that dynamic. The thing about a mentor is it's not just someone who shows you the way, but it's someone who believes in you. Oh, absolutely. That's the difference between somebody who is a faculty member who is impressive and you aspire to and the person who becomes your mentor because part of that blind devotion is they believed in you so you owe it to them to believe in them. Yes, that is true. And that's what I think is happening with Murphy right now as well. Mm -hmm. But also things like bringing them flowers for no reason. This happened Mm -hmm. in grad school. Mm -hmm. I saw in college people just like randomly bring a bunch of candy bars Mm-hmm. which is very sweet. Don't get me wrong. It's very sweet. But it looks very different when you're on the other side of it. It does look very different when you're on the side of it, It particularly when it happens over and over again. Mm-hmm. It feels like someone who's in love, actually. It is. I mean, it is a form of love. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, the danger of like a hero worship. Yes. It was something that I saw myself do first with my first mentor, but not with my mm-hmm. mentors after that. And I agree with that, yeah, especially being in a place where I am similar to where you were, where I'm coming back to something I have already have a degree in mm-hmm. and have already had a lot of experience in to hone that and being around either undergrads who this is their first ever or someone who's coming from a different area. And again, this is their first time into this. They are meeting those first mentors. So, of course, these are not my first mentors. So I have a different reaction to them. And there is something to the concept of And I will say I, and maybe it's just a different time. So like gender dynamics are different. I don't notice it being a gendered experience in my sphere. Good. It seems to be pretty across the board. And it's not every person. It's a rare person, thankfully. But I think there's something about when you hero worship something, something that is indelibly linked to worship is this idea that the other person is infallible. Exactly. Which is what Murphy Mm -hmm. has sort of crushed in a way. We enter Phil's and... One of the things I really enjoy that they sometimes do most often with Phil's is that we start hearing Phil's voice before we've even transitioned in. Yeah. So we see the the exterior kind of setup shot and then we hear, hey there, Murphy, as it's fading into the table. So they're at the hero table and Phil's saying, hey there, Murphy, you're wearing pearls. This guy must be somebody special. And he's looking at him and you can see this, Pat Corley does this really well, of that thing when you're almost flattering like someone's dad. <laughs> Like I think about when I like would bring my mom to my very fancy job in New York 
And there was definitely this energy from like some of my managers or people who would come over and like kind of shower praise of being like, oh, you know, she's a pretty special girl or, you know, like that kind of stuff. And he was clearly like looking at with fondness at this person who clearly means a lot. Yeah. And like, there's no energy that Phil thinks this is a date. Like, it's very clearly yeah. like she adores this man. And this man is clearly safe as well. That's something that I think is really special about the way that William, is it Shallert? I don't know. And he's so okay. famous. Exactly. I'm like, I've seen him in everything. Why don't I know how to pronounce his name? But there's something that he brings to Ken Hamilton that is, and as we were kind of alluding to with like the collegiate mentor, is he is so clearly safe. He is a safe, tender, kind human. He just radiates that. I think something that William the actor naturally is as a performer. And I also feel like they also cast him because of his television persona which Uh is exactly what we see Mm -hmm. but i think back then particularly more than now people will look at him and say oh this is uh, patty duke's dad from the patty duke show and he's a trusted visage exactly and that's sort of Mm -hmm. you know 1960s and i'm going to say 1950s even though i know that that's not the patty duke show but this sort of 1950s 1960s dad like father knows best or Uh someone in black and white who you know goes hey gidget Mm -hmm. what are you doing Let's talk to dad. He was definitely cast because of that, that people look at him and know X. Mm-hmm. Now, a different type of show would cast him and then make him a monster because that bait and switch would be so fun. Like a different type of show would do that. Was he ever on Murder, She Wrote? Did they ever do that? No. No, the other no, guy was. was. Sorry, the other guy was. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah. Wallace Langham was. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I can only think of him being a kind person. Like he's the mm-hmm. doctor in inner space who's like, What's going on, kid? There's someone talking in my head. No, no, just go on vacation. And what that does when you're casting stuff like this, when, I mean, not only what does this actor carry that? So like, even if you are watching it now and you don't know this person's particular pedigree, you see that and you know the type of person it is. But especially then you cast someone like that and the audience immediately loves him. Mm -hmm. And you as an audience are in the same spot as Murphy. Where, like, you don't want him to be sad. You don't want to hurt him. You see these things and you understand why Murphy ends up so kind of hamstrung by her decision because you're endeared to this man. Yeah. It sort of reminds me in casting in the whole sense of when Lily Tomlin came in to replace Grant because Mm -hmm. everyone loved Miles so much that whoever was going to come into that part was probably going to be ridiculed no matter how great they were. Mm -hmm. And I actually do believe that's, now that I think about it, it is the same reason that Lily Tomlin was cast as the new secretary replacing Mrs. Landingham. Yep, that's exactly what I yeah. thought about. So you have her replacing Mrs. Landingham on the West Wing after some time of, you know, mourning. But she's coming into these two established series, replacing characters that people loved because she already has a built-in love that people have for Lily Tomlin. You can't hate her. Lily Tomlin also carries an air of... I don't need you to like me right away. You will. Ah! You know, like there's a quality of like, you know, her as Deborah Fitterer on the West Wing, you know, comes in and is very kind of unabashedly herself. Yeah. Isn't trying to be Mrs. Landingham. She didn't come in trying to be Miles. And that's something about Lily, that she is so herself, no matter what, that you're not seeing someone try to fill shoes. It's a new shoe. And I think it's a really smart way of casting. Like I haven't seen Mm -hmm. Promising a Young Woman yet. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that all of the men in it were particularly, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not 
I think on purpose, but I read this review that said they thought it was very smart that if you looked at the background of most of the actors, they had played nice guys on television. Yep. So it was yep. playing against your thoughts about them, which I think is so mm -hmm. smart. So casting when you are known can mm -hmm. be an extra piece of information to work towards the script. So for people listening who have not seen one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years, Knives Out, I'm going to mm. speak about it for a little bit. So skip ahead if you don't want a spoiler. But when they cast, holding for people to pause. We'll put the numbers in the summary so you know when to come back. By casting Captain America in the role that was eventually the murderer, the bad guy, what it did is it made the commentary about, oh, well, you look at this guy and he looks this way. And like he tells you when you meet him that he is a bastard. Like everyone is telling you he's a bad guy. But because he looks a certain way and because you love him X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. you are willing to let an affluent, nice white boy. All you have to do is be like, but I don't want him to be. So you go for so long and then it's proven that we tricked you by doing that. I mean, it is brilliant. A very sort of, you know, maybe running parallel with that casting choice would be Janet Lee in Psycho. Yep. Janet Lee was cast in Psycho because she was a big time movie star. Just like Drew Barrymore was cast in Scream. Yep. It was an homage to Psycho, which exactly. was, oh, well, she's the lead. She can't die. He specifically mm -hmm. cast someone who you would assume the movie was about because she was such a famous movie star that when mm -hmm. she died at the beginning of the film, you were shocked. Yeah. That's the best part. Oh, it's genius. Anyway. Yeah. Back to the episode. So we finally see Mr. Hamilton. And as we said, it is a William Shallert. He's just kindness. He is just kindness itself. Turns out Mr. Hamilton brought the old yearbook, the oh, 1966 no. Centurion. What I love is Murphy immediately goes, you didn't. You used to be such a nice man. Phil does the longest, whoa, <laughs> into, and they're looking at young Murphy. And he says, would you look at that hair? It must be four feet tall. And Murphy's defending her. She says, it's a beehive. It was fashionable then. And Phil says, looks like Jiffy Pop just before it's ready to blow and takes the yearbook and begins showing it to everyone in the bar, to which I wrote, this is my family's love language. Mr. Hamilton is, he is so kind and he's just smiling at her discomfort as Phil's running around. And like Phil goes to the guy at the next table, then he goes over to the bar and everyone just uproariously starts laughing. Like he's just like a ping pong ball just bouncing around. Ken Hamilton is so proud. Ken Hamilton is just amused and he's so kind and he says he's so excited to catch up with her. And Murphy's smiling back and we see this nice softness to Murphy that, you know, we only see every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And she says, I had three influences in my life, Edward R. Murrow, Wiley Coyote, and Mr. Hamilton. Wiley Coyote. I love Which that. I was like, the Wiley Coyote, I was like, that is so spot on. Like, what a lovely combo because <laughs> that is Murphy Brown. Yeah. And he says, don't call him Mr. Hamilton, call him Ken. And I love what she says. She's like, okay, she'll try. But it's a little like calling the Queen of England Betty, <laughs> which made me be like, all right, Elizabeth is Betty. Oh, right. I guess I would. Yeah. He's sharing that, you know, things have actually changed since she was in his class and in his department. They've added a video department and he's been teaching broadcast journalism. Mm -hmm. That is until he hit the magic number 65, which I remember growing up and being like, oh, yeah, when people turn 65, they retire, which is not actually as true anymore. Also, especially for our generation going forward, retirement age is kind of becoming a non-entity as we live in gig economies and are people who are probably going to have to work our entire lives. But there are still companies that still require mm -hmm. you that you're forced to retire. My uncle mm -hmm. was forced to retire at 65. There are definitely still some industries that can still operate under that. But it's interesting to like think about that that was just a given when I was a kid and now it's becoming less yeah, and less. That and you got a gold watch. Yep. And a pension. <laughs> what's that 
the idea of that. <laughs> and she says, well, that's great. If anyone deserves to enjoy your retirement, it's him. And he does what I remember growing up with around a lot of career women who were sick of being told, like, at this age, you do this. And by this age, you do this. And da, 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 which was that he wants to keep doing the things he loves. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to retire. He doesn't want to be put out to pasture. So he says he's going to open a school right here in the hub of the news world. And Murphy thinks that's a great idea. She realizes, she says, but opening a school has got to be a big investment. And he says, no, he's taking it slowly. You're looking at the registrar, the custodian, and head nurse. <laughs> he's so excited. He's got his old blood pumping. And Murphy, being a very kind and giving person, immediately you know, reaches for her purse and says she wants to make a donation. Because if it wasn't for him, she wouldn't be here today. You know what's just hitting me? And I feel stupid for not even thinking about this. Hmm. Understanding what we know and we'll find out about well, really, I guess we do know already about Murphy's relationship with her father, mm -hmm. that having a newsman at home who could really seem to care less about her mm -hmm. and her hopes and dreams or her grades. I mean, later on, there is an episode where we flash back to Murphy showing her father that, you know, she got a B on her essay on Khrushchev. And he's like, should have mm -hmm. been an A and just like ignores her. This is a male father figure that mm -hmm. cared about her dreams. Yep, who was kind and gentle, but you also get the idea that like he ran the place like the New York Times. Yeah, she uh, she knew what it was like to be seen as a professional and treat yeah and treated as and held to the standard that was expected of a professional. Yeah, but also treated with kindness at the same time. Yeah, I mean you can tell he's a unique form. She probably did not see a lot of. Yeah, it makes me sad thinking about that actually. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. He would have cared about her bee on the Kustrev essay. Yep, he would have cared. He probably still does. So he says that he won't take her money, even though People Magazine says you're rolling in it. <laughs> but he says there's one thing that she can do. What she just said about how without him, she wouldn't be here today would make a wonderful quote in his brochure. And Murphy says, of course you can use it. I put my name on anything Ken Hamilton was involved oh. with. And you hear that line. And I was just like, uh-oh. Also, if you were paying attention to the name of the episode, yeah. you're like, oh, no, Murphy, no. that's no. But also, no, Murphy, don't say that. I love Ken so much, but that's a lot mm -hmm. of liberty. And it, the only reason it doesn't come across as manipulative and scheming is because of the way he's played. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, this sweet puppy. He has no idea that like he just assumes that what he's about to run with is OK because of the way she said it. Yeah. As well. And their relationship and how devoted she is to him and mm -hmm. feels that he's so responsible for who she is, which mm -hmm. to him must be such a huge compliment because of where she yeah. is in the industry. Exactly. I like the fact that they made it her high school yearbook teacher or her high school teacher and not a college professor. Mm -hmm. Much more of an impact when it's high school because usually you don't get that kind of teacher in high school. Yeah. And also there is such a thing to like the hometown pride. Yes, good someone. point. Good point. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. like I think a lot about people who knew you as a child have such an investment in who you become as an adult as opposed to, I mean, not as opposed to, but like when people know you as a young adult, but there is such an investment in the child. Yeah, absolutely. From that type of thing. And so to see her grow up. So anyway, he says with her name and his skill, he'll be turning students away. At that moment, Phil returns and he tells Murphy that a guy at the bar wants to know if she can still get into this position on the balance beam. Oh, And he roils in laughter. And we cut to back in the bullpen. And now the sweet secretary is crying. And instead of unpacking her belongings, she's packing her belongings. <laughs> Bless her. It's 
<laughs> this is so random, but works for what we know about mm-hmm. Murphy. Uh, Jim uh, comes in from, from the elevator area. He enters the bullpen holding a newspaper, and he's like, absolutely incredible. And what we find out is that he is upset over an ad for the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting. Enter title. Dun, dun, dun. With a picture of Murphy's high school yearbook, which can only make us guess exactly who put this ad in the paper. Uh-huh. And Jim is just completely upset about commercial endorsements. You know, it spermerched. What does he say? Oh, I have the line if you'd like it. Oh, yes, please do the line. As Jim says, commercial endorsements besmirch our entire profession. Oh, sure, I could have taken that lucrative contract to push fruit of the loom, but did I? No. Once a journalist tap dances across the screen in a banana suit, he can kiss his credibility goodbye. So I tried to look up if there was ever a journalist, even though I know that journalistic Mm. integrity has always been something that is taught. It is not, you know, just something that people came up with because it was a different time. Mm-hmm. so to speak. I'm trying not to go too much into that right now. But I was like, there must have been someone who like, you know, did something embarrassing or did a commercial yeah. in Japan. And I couldn't find anything. Mm, that's interesting. And I couldn't think of anything that I remembered that, you know, was like, oh, Walter Cronkite shouldn't have endorsed Cheerios, you know, like yeah. something <laughs> that seemed benign at the time, but then came out and people were like, oh, that was a mistake. And I feel like there must be something, but I couldn't Maybe find it. Maybe it's because it. Jim Dial got in the way of all of those moments. Well, of He course. stopped them from happening. He's so strong and prolific in that way. He is. So Murphy arrives as the crying secretary with her box gets on the elevator. Uh, and uh, Frank approaches Murphy and he, he wants to know, you know, was it a tax shelter, you know, or did she completely lose her mind? And of course, Murphy has no idea what he's talking about. And Murphy looks at the newspaper and is appalled. She hopes, hopes, hopes it's a joke. She refers to the picture as if her hair was any higher, you could sell lift tickets on it, which I enjoy. And then, of course, Miles arrives. Miles would like Murphy to know that he saw an ad. In the newspaper, because cemetery plots at Mount Zion are on sale, which he's going to, of course, need because of the ad that he saw in the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting. I'm sorry. Well, the ad that he saw for the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting. And then I was thinking today about, like, instead of everyone reading it in the newspaper, that everyone would have seen it maybe on Twitter. I mean, yeah, there, probably. there's still ads in the New York Times, but, like, yeah. it's not a thing to, like, be like, look at all these ads as I read the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Maybe Ken's Twitter handle started following everybody on. <laughs> Why is the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting following me on Instagram? Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, adding people. He hopes the school is successful because then Murphy can buy Miles a headstone for the nice plot that he ordered after he returns a call from Ted Koppel, who wants to know how he can register for a high paying, glamorous, easy to learn career. <laughs> it's one of a. Uh... Maybe not necessarily word version, my favorite Miles rant, but the way that Grant goes through this rant is quite spectacular. So she's assuring everyone that Mr. Hamilton totally misunderstood, you know, that he could use her name, but not in this way. Miles is apoplectic that she needs to fix it because none of his on-air talent need to be involved in something that could bring negative press. And Murphy agrees. Mm. So, of course, Mr. Hamilton shows up with brochures in hand. And he's just so sweet and excited. And uh, Murphy introduces him to everyone and and particularly introduces him, which in such a respectful way, right? By saying that this is a man that she owes her success to. I think that's so important how she introduces him to everybody. And he is just so gleeful. 
about the fact that he is also the founder of the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting and shows off his booklets, which he came from printer because he wanted everyone's, you know, thoughts on it. Well, Murphy particularly, but now that the whole FYI gang is here. And they would love to. Frank laments that he doesn't understand how they can make hair that high, but they can't get the squeak out of his dashboard. <laughs> A lot of very male heavy jokes for Frank in this episode. Yep. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say that. Listen, anyone, no matter who you are, can be obsessed with a squeak in your dashboard. That's real. It's very real. So Murphy takes Mr. Hamilton, who, of course, insists that she call him Ken, into her office in private to discuss this blunder. So we are in the office, and as she's making her way in, looking very uncomfortable, Ken goes, oh, hey, and notices something. She's still got that old AP-style book he got her when she graduated. And like his sweet, caring voice as he picks yeah. it up, like you even see that like that means so much to him. And we just get, yeah, <laughs> well, listen, Ken, Murphy is struggling to find the words. She says she thinks there's been a little misunderstanding. She didn't mean when she said that she'd put her name on anything he does that he would actually use her name by naming the whole school after her. And sweet Ken is like, isn't it great? I wanted to surprise you. Oh, Ken. Oh, Ken. Oh, it's a surprise, all right. And she says that she sees that Kathleen Sullivan called, wanting to know if she could get in on the early admissions program, which made me go, Kathleen Sullivan. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, and I'm taking this particular quote because it's really spot on, from an article in February of 1994 from People, which is, In the world of television journalism, few stars have risen as fast or flamed out as completely as Kathleen Sullivan. Whoa. Her story is fascinating. I don't want to take up too much time, but I really highly recommend looking into Kathleen Sullivan's career because what it says about what we do to women in these positions and the way that we categorize them, tokenize them, and give them shelf lives is quite upsetting, honestly. What happened? In 1980, at 27, she was the first female anchor hired by CNN. Four years later, she was covering the Sarajevo Olympics for ABC. And then in 1990, she was abruptly fired from CBS. So there were rumors all over the place about her, which is clearly what's kind of like leading up to this particular joke, because this is what was happening at the time, which was there were rumors that she was difficult and demanding, which are things that, you know, are only bad if you're female. Mm -hmm. Her behavior was said to be erratic. There were rumors that she had slept with her former boss, the ABC News president, Rune Arledge. Later, there would be rumors that she was having an affair with Martina Navratilova. And as a tennis fan... I was like, oh, interesting. So she passionately denies all the gossip. Uh, she's currently 67. But there's no denying that after CBS fired her, her career as a big time journalist pretty much stopped. Oh, no. Now she's her most recent stuff. She's like been a blogger for uh, HuffPost and all Great. this other stuff. So okay. like she has been she's come back fighting. But here's something that I think is particularly upsetting about this. There are a few different interviews with her about this. She was fired on Valentine's Day of 1989, actually, not in 1990. So that was a misspeak of mine. Oh, so this joke is very prevalent. Very prevalent. She had just been fired and all of these rumors were going around. She denies both of the affairs that she was said to have had. She was criticized for have people assuming she was having a frisky New York li- nightlife style because people thought she was looking tired and haggard and puffy because people thought she was looking tired and haggard and puffy <sighs> on air. She also was uh, prematurely graying. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. And so this was in the year where her father died. Her husband divorced her. She stopped coloring her gray hair and she gained some weight because she was going through some Mm. shit. 
So the Washington Post, in an unattributed quote that said she was old and unattractive and no one wants to look at her. And a one former coworker said she had that look that she'd been up all night, which fueled hair curling stories about her personal life. And she could be sweet as spice one day, bordering on monstrous the next. It's hard to know what truth really was. She's a type of person around whom rumors just fly. Oh, this is horrible. Right? And so... It's so indicative of the time. Exactly. And of what they were doing to females in these particular male-dominated roles. No one cares if you've got a Warren Beatty you know, womanizer who might look tired because you know what, he's being so interesting and having this like flashy life and so on. You could still do that with a lot of the a lot of the reporters and probably even some anchors, although most anchors at this point we were thinking about like the gyms. Mm. But still like there was a place for a man to have that type of persona. There's no place for a woman to have that type of persona. And I went down such a rabbit hole looking at all the things that were said and like all the different ways that she came back fighting for her own career in the face of people just throwing rumors back and forth. And also, I just want to state that even if rumors were true Mm -hmm. about who she was sleeping with, what gender she was sleeping with, the fact that her hair was prematurely graying, the fact that she gained some weight because her father died and her marriage ended. Absolutely. She does not deserve what happened Mm -hmm. to her because of any of Mm -hmm. those things. That is not okay, regardless of truth or accuracy. That has nothing to do with her ability to be a journalist. Unless, like, what happened to Murphy and why she had to go to Betty Ford. Yeah. Like, if she was in an actual unhealthy place where she was incapable of doing her job, but that's not why she was fired. This is horrible. It reminds me a bit, not completely, but in conservative circles, there was this sort of, you know, rumor played as fact that, oh, well, you know, Kamala Harris, she slept her way to the top, and that's the only reason why she's where she is. And I was like, are we really still... Using this trope, really? Mm-hmm. It blows my mind. So I just wanted to share that information because I thought this audience would be interested. Highly recommend going and reading more about it because, ooh, not okay mm-hmm. with it. So she says, look, Ken, she knows that he meant it as a compliment, but that having her name there could cause a lot of problems. And he is very sweet in response and says that he would never use her name if it makes her uncomfortable. She thanks him, but then he very excitedly continues that that's why he wants her to come by that night and give it a real going over. And if she still has a problem, they'll take it off. But he thinks she's going to love it. And you can see her. She just cannot bring herself to say no. And she goes, that's a great idea. Oh, and Ken just had another idea. Oh, boy. Imagine how excited the students would be if the whole FYI team stopped by because they're clearly also excited. It's just, oh, that would be exciting. But, well, thank goodness she thinks that's exciting. He has to run. He has a million things to do. He very sweetly like kisses her on the cheek and is on his way out. And we see the dartboard, which says, lost toilet pays maximum. Lost toilet pays maximum? Yep. There's no punctuation. Lost toilet is one line. Pays and maximum are their own I'm separate so lines. I'm so confused. If anyone has insight on that, please help me. Yeah. Email us, <laughs> and, Corby. We don't understand. Please. <laughs> Corby, tell me. pay toilet? And so she, I don't know. Okay. Lost toilet pays maximum. Well, listen, if you lost a toilet, you should pay the maximum for You're going to pay the maximum for <laughs> So he says, thank you for everything. Isn't life great? Okay. And runs out the door and Murphy just grimaces. Oh, oh isn't life great? And we cut to. We cut to, which based on the clothing is that night, obviously, mm-hmm. to the hallway 
which looks like something from like an early 1980s, late 70s movie, mm-hmm. like Breakin or Electric Boogaloo. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I don't know if this is a parody or if this is still ha- was still happening in yep. D.C. in the 90s. Because I can only compare it, of course, to New York City. But still, it is not a good part of town is what we were trying to be told by the scenery. Although someone wrote, I'm just a love machine. Is that what that said on the wall? They just want to share themselves. There's garbage on the ground. And Corky is upset because Frank didn't stand up for her when those men made kissing noises at her. (laughs) Frank has to remind her that there were six of them with baseball bats and no ball, which I do love that (laughs) joke, you know, is very evocative. (laughs) Yep. No ball. Oh, yes. Okay. We get that now. Murphy knows it looks bad. But she, you know, she really wants everyone to be positive about this. You know, he's such a good teacher. Miles wants to let everybody know that even though he drove because his is the only car that holds five people, which is now his brand new BMW is sitting out in the parking lot where people will strip it and set it on fire. Hmm. Also, it is very cold in the hallway, which is noted by uh, words and really by everyone's behavior. I truly thought they were outside. Yes. At first I thought, at first I thought, oh, there's. No heat in the hallway, but there'll be heat inside. Mm-hmm. And that is incorrect because we go inside yep. and everyone seems to be huddled for warmth. Someone recognizes Murphy right away. As you do. As you do, of course. And she thinks it must be packed, you know, which is very exciting. But the guy who recognizes her first is just hanging out in there because it's really dangerous outside. His wife is in traffic school. Mm-hmm. And then a guy with a very thick Scottish accent runs up to Jim. So excited to see him. And then all of his friends say that he sounds like him. Was that Mr. McDougal of later? Of what? Of the last scene. Mr. McDougal, who's practicing in the last scene. Yes, that is him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would like to audition for the role of Mr. McDougal. I just want to throw that out there. I love him. Jesse, yes. Are you doing sides or a monologue today for us? I will do a monologue, but it's really private. I I worked on it. Also, are you sure that he's Scottish? He sounds a lot like Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, I almost thought he might have a Northern Irish, which is an Irish that's a lot closer to Scottish and Manx. And McDougal could go either way. That's true. One of my best friends is Scottish. Not that he sounds like a cartoon, mm-hmm. but that was why my brain went to Scottish. But mm-hmm. I could be completely I wrong. I mean, McDougal could be either one. So Ken arrives and he's so sorry that he wasn't there to meet everyone. He's so excited everybody is there. But he had to talk to the landlord about putting the heat on. Not a very good sign. No. So Mr. Hamilton introduces Murphy. She should talk because the best thing in journalism is to go right to the source. But of course, Murphy was not expecting to give a speech or to talk at all. Frank and Corky have some banter, which is a running thing with Frank about how the school chairs remind him of his Catholic upbringing and being hit over the head by nuns. Mm -hmm. To which Mr. Hamilton says no talking. And then Corky does this great thing where she blames Frank like 11 year old. That he was talking. I wasn't talking. He was. He was. So Murphy decides that since she hasn't prepared anything, that she'll just take questions from the group, which oh. now, based on your story about Kathleen Sullivan, I feel has a whole different weight to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the only questions that the group have are superficial questions about the fact that she's famous. Yeah. They want to know how much money she makes. They want to know if she's dating Jack Nicholson and if she is, if she makes more money than him. As even Ken said, people says she's rolling in dough. Like she is. Yeah. She is gossip fodder. I am going to say that Jack Nicholson probably makes more money than she does. I'm going to say yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then also this person needs to know that if she is dating him and she does make more money than Jack Nicholson, is that a problem? 
<laughs> which is also sort of like an anti-feminist question. Like, I'm starting to think if these questions are based on the story that you just told. Mm. Who knows? Anyway, Murphy encourages Jim to talk and that she shouldn't take all the time because this is extremely awkward. Oh, I should mention that someone says that he heard that they're paying Deborah Norville a million too. And is that standard for an entry level position? <laughs> God, I wish. This was because she was hosting the Today Show, right? For like two hot seconds? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So then we cut to time has passed and now the heat obviously is too hot. Oh, we also need to recognize that Jim is an absolute hell. Oh, yes. Truly. Everyone is in hell. Of course, when we come back, Frank is asleep, (laughs) as he said he did in math class. And we see that Murphy is still answering questions about her private life, which is explaining how she took out a 30-year loan so there'd be the least amount of interest. And so I realized that in modern times, Murphy paid off her mortgage. So yay, Murphy. Good job, Murphy. How does that feel? I don't know. <laughs> that would have been, if the show was still on, we would yep. hopefully know that how that feels. But yeah, so Murphy's paid off the townhouse. We're so happy for her. <laughs> yeah. What I also love, which is a detail that I have never noticed, not that this is one of my favorite episodes, but I've seen it before. Miles's glasses are fogged up from the heat. Yeah, it's so good. That is such a great little detail. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it so much. All of a sudden, his car alarm goes off and Miles just jumps up and he goes, let's go get him. As if the entire class is going to run after him and save his car. They're not. They are not. So Mr. Hamilton begins to teach and talk how, you know, you never get too close to a person you're doing a story on or someone that you're covering or the people that you're covering because you need to hold objectivity. Which, yes, in theory, is a very important thing. But Murphy has to correct him that, you know, the more personal relationships that you have, obviously there's a line as a journalist that you have to set. But the more that you're able to do that, the more you're able to get the story behind the story. Also, I I have to recognize that before he starts talking, Murphy excitedly turns to Frank and says, now you're going to see what he can do. Oh, that's right. When he goes into teaching and you see her be like, see, now you're going to see why I love this man so much. And the first thing she has to do is correct him. And then as she continues to keep correcting him, it kills her. It's so it's so painful for her to correct him, but she feels that she has to. He also describes how everyone in broadcast journalism works together to get a story on air. And again, she has to correct him that in the reality, there's network politics and sponsors and concerns over ratings. And it's not about getting important stories on the air all the time. So then Mr. Hamilton is still excited about the sound of the teletype machine, which is really, a really old reference, even I think for a layman, right? Even in 1990. And it just pains her. But Murphy has to explain that they're all computerized now. I really feel for him because it's not his fault. Well, and this is jumping ahead a little bit to the last scene, but Mm. basically says, yeah, I don't know a lot of these new things, but I can learn them. Exactly. Yeah. Like the ability to teach and the insight that comes from once you get more information is what is unique to him and his kindness. We fade into the townhouse where Murphy lying almost plank style face down on her couch. And Eldon is I think he's folding up a tarp is what it looks like a drop cloth toward where her head is. And Elton says, I'm going to go out on an emotional limb here. And he kind of just stares at her for a moment, kind of, I think, willing it to not have to happen. And says, would you like to talk about it? (laughs) Murphy raises her head. Yes. Yes, she would. And asks Elton if he's ever had a mentor. And Elton says, of course. She sits up and she explains to him that tonight she sat in a room and realized that she had surpassed her mentor Mm. and that it was really hard for both of them. 
I'm just like, woof. That sits in a really true place. Like, it stings. And there's something I really appreciate about educators is that this is a common thing, is that you are... I mean, there's this idea when you're educating the next generation that you are educating people who are then going to go out and be on the forefront of the innovation of the thing you are teaching and Mm -hmm. eventually will know more than you do. Yeah. And like that idea is that you are raising someone to surpass you. Like that is the goal. And it's such a sign of strength and humility that educators like Ken Hamilton and like the ones that we know in real life continue to do what they do, even as they are themselves attempting to grow with the times in their own position that knowledge of the fact that like the people they are training are eventually going to surpass them and that's what they want i love educators and eldon is really hit by this he shares that he had the same experience that actually happened many years ago he says there was an artist in greenwich village a man he considered a genius they would sit and talk about theory and technique for hours and his work was incredible it was bold and it was full of feeling And he asked this man if he could observe him, but the artist was very private. And Eldon said he just couldn't resist. So one night he snuck over to the studio and he climbed up on the roof so he could see the man through the skylight. There he was, stark naked. I watched, amazed, as my mentor sits in a can of paint and drags his butt across the canvas like a dog on a carpet. He sold that painting for $45,000. He called it the crack of dawn. And you see like, oh, blessings to this performance. He just it becomes overcome with emotion. This he is says, my favorite part of the episode, actually. It's so good. It's so good. I miss Eldon. He says, it was a very painful experience for me. And as you can tell, I'm still not completely over it. Also, this show likes to take a lot of pot shots at modern art. <laughs> yes, they do. And it's hilarious. <laughs> And Murphy is not amused. She lets him go through it. She goes, are you all right? Yes, go on. So Murphy says, it's gotten really out of hand. How does she tell her mentor that he's failing? Oh, It would break his heart. And Eldon sits on the couch and looks at her and he says, let's put it in layman's terms. You're going to let this old guy sit up on a rotting scaffold because you haven't got the paint cans to be honest with him. Mm-hmm. Is that it? Which like snaps yeah. for Eldon he, and that wisdom. He is Jiminy Cricket. Yes. And Murphy doesn't understand why this is happening to her. She was just minding her own business. And Eldon again says, if you really respect this teacher of yours, you would tell him the truth. Oh, go Eldon. She says that she knows and she thanks him for the ear. And he interrupts her to say, never say that to an artist. This is my favorite joke of the episode. It's the best joke. It's it's like a sly little Van Gogh joke. (laughs) Like, come on. Or Van Gogh. We're back at the Murphy Brown School of Broadcasting. Murphy arrives as our Scottish or maybe Northern Irish guy. Mr. McDougal. Mr. McDougal is doing color commentary on a sporting event with such passion and definitely had a thesaurus at some point in his life because (laughs) it is really color commentary. I feel really represented by Mr. McDougal. You really love him. That's so great. He's wonderful. Has he been anything that we would know? I didn't even look it up. I don't want I don't want to even I want to believe in Mr. McDougal, the character. Okay, I understand. I love him. Yeah. I also love her outfit because she has sort of a yeah. dark blue-greenish trench coat. It's nice. I want it. With sort of like a matching kind of like sweatery thing and this like turquoise necklace. It's I love it so much. Mm-hmm. It's very Murphy. So she wants to talk to him after class is over. They sit down together and she just wanted him to know that You know, it meant so much to her that he had sat her down in high school and asked her what she wanted to do because no one had ever asked her that. 
mm-hmm. which I think has it's not just for Murphy at that time in her life because she didn't have a father figure. I think also as a woman, mm-hmm. women weren't asked what they were going to do. Yep. If they were going to college, it was to get their MS, their MRS. I just messed up that joke. The MRS, <laughs> their MRS degree. They're looking for a husband. Mm-hmm. She knew that he didn't pull any punches and that if he knew it wasn't a career for her, he would have told her. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that Mr. Hamilton kind of gets what she's about to say, I think. Yeah. Because he knows. He's a smart man. He's a very smart man. Murphy feels that this is a mistake. The equipment is out of date. And that the classroom is just a different experience than real life. Mm-hmm. And she knows that teaching means so much to him, but she feels like he's throwing away his life savings. And then a student arrives, Uh. someone actually that we may recognize, the actor Wallace Langham from The Larry Sanders Show. This is just a sign of my age. I immediately was like, oh, I love him on CSI. (laughs) You know, it was funny because I knew he was familiar, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember why. So I've probably seen him in commercials because I don't watch Mm -hmm. the show. He's been in so much. I definitely know him from The Larry Sanders Show from my childhood, and that's probably one of the first things I saw him in. But... I loved CSI in high school. He's done a ton. The man has aged wonderfully. I would agree, yes. The way his hair has grayed is so nice. I saw the picture and I was like, oh, yeah, good going, sir. Get it, Wallace. Oh, God, I just thought of something. What? I can't believe I forgot about this. I just remembered an article, or several interviews probably, where Diane has spoken about her college playwriting teacher in the same regard that Murphy talks about Ken. You know, we've been doing so many episodes back to back. Yeah. I probably didn't have time to sort of marinate in this episode and remember, Mm -hmm. oh my God, that's totally what this is probably loosely based on because she has surpassed her playwriting teacher, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, guys. I just had like an epiphany because I have a weird memory. (laughs) (laughs) So this lovely student, Michael, comes in very excited and Murphy, of course, is like, listen, we're having a conversation. He doesn't even even realize that it's Murphy Brown, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. It says something about Ken. It does. Because Ken is what matters. Exactly. And he's there to tell Ken, Mr. Hamilton, that he got a job. This wonderful teacher sat up with him till 1 a.m., which, by the way, 1 a.m. in a bad part of town. Yep. Talking to him about how he shouldn't quit and that he should really, you know, believe in himself. And he took that advice and he went down to the PBS station, which is, by the way, where Diane started her career. Yep. And got the job. Go, Michael. As an intern, it pays the rent, and the last guy got a job as a field reporter for a network affiliate. Mm-hmm. He really is so sad that he can't finish the class. But of course, you know, Mr. Hamilton is so excited for him and wishes him the best yeah. of luck. And when he leaves, Murphy feels like a jerk, but Mr. Hamilton goes, he knows it's okay. Like, he knows he's out of touch. Mm-hmm. But he can fix that because Murphy can teach him. Oh, God, it's so beautiful. It's I got so choked so up at that. pretty. And they decide she's going to take him out to Phil's, buy him dinner, and they're going to have a pop quiz. And then Ken again tells Murphy to call him Ken <laughs> and not Mr. Hamilton, which is such a great lead-in. What I love about this is that it's a great last line of this episode that they set up through the whole episode so yep. it doesn't feel forced at all. Exactly. You know, Mr. Hamilton, call me Ken. And Murphy goes, I think Ken Hamilton is a great name for a school. Oh. And he agrees. And they walk out. Murphy looks relieved. And she turns off the light. And the episode ends. Oh, it's so sweet. Like, just this (laughs) idea of, like, they're colleagues now. Yeah. 
Oh, it was so beautiful. It was such a lovely episode. It hit me in many feel places. It's not an episode that I watch a lot, but it's deep diving into it. I see how kind and poignant it is, but also seeing it from Murphy's side now. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, this is an episode that I think ages really well. Yeah, it does. As I age, that it means more and more to me now that I'm rounding the bend to be in that position. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Yeah. This episode is better with time. It was good to begin with, but like for me as a viewer, I appreciate it more now. Yeah, because it's not one that I would say is jam-packed with jokes, yeah. which is fine because the substance is there. Yeah. And nowadays, I feel like sitcoms can't really do that, mm -hmm. mostly because they're so short. Yeah. They're more sort of, you know, joke factories or it's a one camera, 30 minute comedy, which doesn't have to be jam-packed with jokes. Mm -hmm. Like Search Party, which I just finished, that I'm obsessed yes. with. So, are you following us on social media? My goodness, you should. It's very easy to find us. We're at Murphy Brown Pod on all of the places that you might be at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Our website is murphybrownpod.com and our email is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. All you need to know is Murphy Brown Pod. Also, you can just give us a review, which is free. Yes. And it helps other people discover the podcast. It does, yes. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm -hmm.